Hello and welcome to another episode of How to Save the World. I'm Tim. We've got no Waveney this episode, so instead I've got two fantastic guests who spoke to me about bees. Now you've probably heard at some point about the threat that bees are facing at the moment, but if you're like me, you might not have known exactly how big that threat is. As you're going to hear again later in this episode, bees are responsible for pollinating a third of all the food that we humans eat. But on top of that, they also help pollinate bush clovers and alfalfa, which make up a bulk of cattle feed. So on top of all the plants that they pollinate directly, which we eat, that's things like fruit and vegetables and nuts, they're also indirectly responsible for a whole bunch of high-protein foods that constitute a lot of our other diet as well, like beef and dairy, would not be possible without the bees. What we've witnessed recently is a huge die-off in bee numbers. There's a phenomenon called colony collapse disorder, and it's when the majority of the worker bees in a hive disappear, which is causing an unsustainable colony that quickly dies off as the queen and her babies are unable to maintain for very long without the adult bees around. Scientists believe that there's multiple factors to blame, including humans destroying too many bee-friendly environments and creating situations where bees' navigation can be compromised. But the single biggest factor is thought to be the use of pesticides in modern industrial agriculture. I wanted to find out more about what we can do differently in our homes to help the bees thrive and what it takes to be a beekeeper too. To do that, I had a chat to Margaret, who's one half of Kiwi Mana Buzz, which is a fantastic podcast and a website and a business dedicated to beekeeping. I also chatted to Jesse from Bees Up Top, which is this great Auckland-based business that installs beehives on buildings and in families' properties to create a vast network of bee havens around the city to boost their numbers. Both of these women are super passionate about saving bees and they know a heck of a lot about these fantastic little critters. So let's hear from them now. On the line, I've got one half of Kiwi Mana. Margaret joins me from the Waitakere Ranges. Uh, she's a bee fanatic. She teaches people about bees. She sells beekeeping equipment and supplies and keeps a ton of bees herself. And she is one half of a podcast, Kiwi Mana, which has been putting out episodes about beekeeping since 2009, which is very early in the podcast game, Margaret. You guys were um, early adopters. Yeah, we started um, doing that. Gary's an IT guy, so he loves all that sort of stuff. And we first started when we did the beekeeping, we did blogging. Gotcha. And it's been an ever-evolving thing, this whole beekeeping thing. It's uh, The show itself is, is so fantastic. I highly recommend people check it out. There's uh, bee news, there's contributors from all over the world, all these different people beekeeping. And it's, yeah, it's really great, even as someone like me who... Um, has never kept even one single bee himself. Yeah, we we enjoy putting it out there and uh, creating a bit of buzz. Nice. (laughs) First bee pun in record time. Very good. Uh, I I was holding myself back. (laughs) (laughs) So, Margaret, tell me, when did you two start beekeeping and what drew you into it? Well, we were over in the UK and we'd been there for a few years and before we came back, we realised that, you know, Um, we wanted to do something when we got back to New Zealand and man, what a ride. Did you two sort of ease your way into it starting off as as a hobby or did you go um, all in from day one and just throw yourselves into beekeeping? 
That's a really good question and we started easing into it. We did it as an interest because it was something we were going to do together and as we started going into it, um, it really grew from there and then, you know, you're talking about saving the world and that kind of thing. Um, That did come into it because we began to realise that beekeeping is part of the natural world. Have you heard of the Varroa destructor mite? I was going to ask you about it. That is one of the terminologies that I wanted to get your genius bee brain on. Tell me about it. What is it? What does it do? (laughs) I'll tell Gary that you call me genius. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Varroa destructor mite is actually a parasite, and that has caused a great deal of challenge to beekeeping. In the old days, you know, an example is, is that the beekeeper would finish the season, they'd take all the honey off and and then close the hives and leave the bees to it over winter. Mm-hmm. And that was awesome. But because of the Varroa destructor mite, that, that was the end of that very lovely story. And then there came the horror of the Varroa mite. And it's caused a lot of um, hive losses in New Zealand and across the world. Are they introduced into New Zealand or do we have our own mite here? No, it was introduced. I don't know exactly what year. I think it was um, in the 90s. Oh, and so this is a recent threat. It hasn't been here long, but in America they've had it for years. And um, that would be when you're looking at the big picture. Mm. We started learning that through the beekeeping practices, we had to change that. And we would put stuff out there because, you know, like I said, as our our beekeeping developed and our skills and our awareness developed, we started understanding that there's real harm going on in the natural world created by humans. Yeah. So, and then with the Varroa mite, on top of that, um, we started to understand that we have to do things differently. Doing things differently is sort of the co-papa of the show that we've got here and we love introducing people to new information that they can integrate into their lives to well save the world hopefully (laughs) if we can all do it so tell me i would love to draw on your experience i know that there's a big difference between beekeeping and having a bee-friendly environment and i'd love to talk to you about the latter of those two things first so for me city slicker um barely done a hard day's labor in my life I live in uh, (laughs) suburban Auckland. What can I do to make it a more friendly environment around my property for bees? Well, urban beekeeping has been going on for quite some time. It's it was we left um, the UK in about two thousand seven, and they were already starting to do a lot of urban beekeeping. So it is possible in a very small area. So you could do things like have, um, you know, planted pots with herbs and spices. Um, You could do ordinary flowers as well. But if I'd suggest to people that they look at having single flowers, because a lot of the hybrids that are multi-flowers have two closed in the middle. So the bees can't get into them. So try to get original heritage type plants, which are usually single flowers. And um, yes, the the herbs and those kind of things will produce flowers and nectar. And 
um, from there they will collect the goodies like the pollen or the nectar and they will use that in their beekeeping to produce wax and, and pot propolis and those kind of things. Is there anything that I should be avoiding doing on my property to help the bees? Oh gosh, that's a real big conversation and my view is <laughs> my view is is that save money, use elbow grease if you're dealing with weed eradication or anything like that, don't use chemicals. Use um, natural ways, do companion planting so you're not encouraging um, one-off and do lots of variety because variety is healthy and doesn't um, attract single pests like in the monocultures that that are going on overseas. We have done uh, episodes on a variety of topics and it seems like monoculture farming and that huge industrial scale of it is responsible for so many bad things that are happening in different sectors of the environment and the food supply. Yeah, I concur. I think that they are very, very notable over recent times. Um, I mean, bees started collapsing in around 1994 in France and they didn't link everything. And my view is, is that, you know, then it goes on to America and America have acres and acres of land. And yes, I agree that it's not only the actual chemicals they use um, to manage the land or pests, it's the seeds, you know, it's the systemic um, nature of these chemicals that are creating so much issue. So yeah, I think that that's caused colony collapse disorder. Is that something that we have experienced in New Zealand, that colony collapse disorder? That's something that I had uh, come across a number of times, and obviously I'd, I'd seen it in the news previously. It's been a big story um, yeah. periodically in the news cycle. Is, is that something we have here? Um, I don't think it's to the extent that it's gone on over there, but I have seen that there are acreages where there's only um, maize or corn, um, mm. and it's lots and lots of it. And I think that's where you start getting problems because you probably have talked about it, but it will create a pest that loves that particular thing. So therefore then they say, oh, well, we need to spray this or whatever. And um, a, a good movie to watch is called The Vanishing of the Bees. Oh, That okay. was really... Yeah, that was a really interesting movie and it talks a lot about what's happened to the bees and, and there was another one called More Than Honey and that one also talks about America and what they do there and I think our goal is to say you don't have to manage the bees that way and bees are actually a living organism and if you don't manage the land well, like if you're in your backyard and you think, oh, I'll just spray this or do that mm -hmm. it actually can cause a ripple effect yeah i think one of the big things that struck me is that we have been living with bees since humans have been humans like bees have been around a lot longer than us and that we are responsible for um changing our behavior to get them back yeah well, i do teaching as well and i teach organic um and natural beekeeping with my bees and what I do and I share the things that we've done we sell a few beekeeping supplies but basically that's to fund all the other work that we do and we have learned that bees are 
actually not being able to develop their genetics because a lot of commercial practices are killing queens. So what they do is every season they kill a queen and then they put a new queen in there and it's from a certain breeding queen that they've got. But I find that in my sense, in my head, and in practice, looking at how it would stunt the, the bee's ability, and you said that, you know, over... They've been around a lot longer than us. They know how to be bees, okay? And they're grateful to be put in a box. But if that box is not managed well, then there's, you know, problems all around. So it's understanding that the bee has certain behaviours and we can naturally use that. Um, instead of killing queens, you can do what we call preemptive splitting so bees don't swarm and, and disappear, that you can use the surviving genetics um, going forward and we breed off those surviving queens and they seem to develop a lot stronger um, bee behaviours when they are able to do a bit of that kind of thing um, with each colony but you know it's 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 not going to be an immediate thing mm. so what, it, it will take time. What's the commercial reasoning for hot swapping the queens out on a year to year basis? Okay, so in saying that, I don't want to, you know, uh, I believe there are commercial practices which are, I don't believe, are helpful to bees. So when a, uh, the, the theory behind it is that if you kill a queen and you put a new queen in, it makes the hive more enthusiastic, I suppose, and they, you know, start gathering around this new queen and they become more productive. That's what they say. Right. And then they they confine them too much. So we don't do that. We, we do things differently. So it's sort of a short-term boost in productivity because it's starting some cycle again within the hive of sort of introducing a new queen. Yeah, yeah. It's like when a colony loses their queen, I think they must go through some stress through that process. But as soon as the new queen is there, the idea is that they get all excited. But then you've got this, the the things that we have done, which we have seen, that the bees are really productive in their second year. We've had huh. colonies in their second year and queens are just so productive. The colonies are really strong. They have very good honey production and they do really well. So we we commercial practices compared to what we do. And i just like to have a little caveat in that to say that a lot of commercial guys are changing what they do. They Is are that looking, right? Is there a bit of yeah, a trend yeah. of um, looking to maybe the smaller practices to, to get that in? Yeah, a lot of them are changing what they're doing, which I think is going to be kinder all round to the bees. And I think in the end they will have better production and they will have really strong genetics being grown through this process. Let's talk a bit more about beekeeping. If someone such as myself, the uninitiated, um, wanted to pursue it as a bit of a, a hobby initially, as it sounds like you and Gary did at the start, how, how much... How much knowledge do you need to kick off with your first little two-by-two-metre beekeeping situation? Okay, well, learn about bees. Maybe go 
and meet with other experienced beekeepers, go to bee clubs or something, and go and have a look in hives without having the responsibility of running the hive. Yeah. So you can just enjoy that that process and see how the bees are and that kind of thing. And, you know, when you do that, you also need to think, oh, well, what sort of beekeeper do I want to be, you know? Do I want to be a hobbyist? Do I want to be a commercial guy? Um, and I say also to my students, what do you actually want from the bees? You know, you know that field with the hive sitting in it and the bees flying around and that wonderful thing. Do you want that? You know, um, and you just want to enjoy them as a pastime or do you want to um, use them for pollination or just honey production so those are the things that people need to ask themselves and if you're gosh it would just be amazing if you're in town and you have a small space and you have a beehive you can have some honey a it's lot a, of t- yeah I, I find that uh, probably because over the last I'd say three decades, four decades, we've become so disconnected from the food chain and our food supplies that it is kind of thrilling now to get back to <laughs> directly getting food from nature and seeing that process happen in front of you. Yeah, so. I agree. And I think that the, the, the thrill that we had when we did our first honey extraction was just, I don't know, it was almost euphoric. It was just so <laughs> awesome, you know. We just felt so thrilled and, and the bees were the bees' knees for us then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The other question is key, do you have time? Do you have time to go in and check and monitor and learn about your hive? You know, I sort of say to my students, you're looking at maybe one inspection once a fortnight. You might be there for two or three hours, because when you're learning, honestly, when I first started, I was in a hive for a long time because it's so overwhelming and busy and buzzy and so much going on. And the information I got, you have to do this, this and this. And I was like, holy, holy moly, you know. How Tell can me a couple I of things that, that you're doing when you're, when you're in the hive. What are you looking for? Are you looking for mites, like literally with your eye? Or are you looking for certain behaviours from the bees? Yeah, you're right. We are looking at that. We're also, I mean, there's different reasons why you'd go into a hive. And I think you need to decide before you go in, especially when you're a beginner, you need to say, okay, well, what am I actually opening the hive for? So I sort of have three key reasons. I'd go into a hive to check honey production, okay, Mm -hmm. or I'd go into the hive to check brood health. Or I'd go into the hive just because I want, it's a beautiful sunny day and the bees are just cruising (laughs) and I just want to go and, you know, commune with my bees. And that's the other side of beekeeping. You become so attached to these tiny, wonderful, fluffy things. Um, Now, I'd love to hear your expert opinion on this because I have always had a perception that wasps pardon my language, are kind of the assholes of the animal kingdom. Uh, I think you've nailed it. Is that true? Am <laughs> I right in saying that? Do they have some hidden uh, utility that I don't know about or are they are they just jerks? Because my understanding is that they are the enemy of the bee. Yeah, I like to call them murdering bastards, really. So we're if on the same track are, here Yeah, we're wasps. on the same, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically with wasps, they're from sort of like... They are related, the Apis family, 
so they are related to bees. But what happened is they are a predator. They've developed as a predator, and they're not natural to New Zealand. I think the countries they came from, I think, um, they were basically there to go and clean up carcasses and and things that were dying and that kind of thing. Mm. And they feed on other insects, and, and that's how they do what they do. And they... Um, hunt bees um, and they capture a bee and they cut it in half and then basically fly back to their nests and they will eat that protein. Oh my god. That's yeah, they're they're even bigger jerks than I first thought and I thought they were pretty bad <laughs> to begin with. Yeah, I, I hate them. I hate them in the sense that they've they have I had a queen that was four years old, so she had been around. She was one of my best queens, and this is a few years ago now. And the hive got sick because we were still learning about the effects of varroa and what happens with varroa. So the hive had gotten weak, and I didn't pick it up in time. So one day I go in there, and the bees are just fantastic. Queenie's there doing her thing, you know, all all is well in the hive. And then I went back about a week later, and they, there was the hive had been just absolutely ransacked. So they can decimate a hive. That's heartbreaking. There's um there's a few little bits of terminology that I came across um in my research on bees that I would love for you to explain what these things are. Is that all right, Margaret? If I just throw some words at you. Yep, yep. Can you tell me what a nuke is? Okay. A nucleus is a colony that's been bred by a beekeeper. Generally, it's got, um, they're done seasonally. So in spring, which is around September in New Zealand, they will start raising, well, they would have prepared for it earlier, but they would have raised colonies from um one queen, then they would split up resources from other hives, put them together, and they will put a queen in there. Or they leave them to raise their own queens and go out and mate naturally. So it's about five frames of bee. It's in a small box. You can go and pick them up from a beekeeper, which I advise people to do, and then that can start your colony. So that's one way to start your adventure in beekeeping. Gotcha. And what is washboarding? <laughs> washboarding is just so awesome to watch. What it is is that this is my interpretation and what I've seen on my colonies as they're doing it. They usually do it more over the hot summer days. So when you've got 55,000 bees coming and going, there's a lot of dirt and matter that comes in with the hive. So my interpretation is because of the way that they're doing it, they're actually, it looks to me like they're using their proboscis and the motion of going backwards and forwards to get rid of dirt because bees are very strong in their cleaning behaviour. So yeah, they, they, they will wash the outside of the hive. It's usually on the landing board. God, they're just amazing, aren't they? These tiny little yeah. insects that have got these complicated hives and all these behaviours and social structure. Um, yes. My next one is, what is a queen excluder? 
Okay, now this is a commercial practice thing, which is, is standard um, information for people starting beekeeping. They hear, oh, I need a queen excluder. Okay, so what happens with a queen excluder? It's placed in the hive, and the, the principle behind having a queen excluder is so that the bee does, the queen itself does not move up and start laying in amongst the honey. So what is it exactly? Is it like a little trap for the queen? No, it's like a grate, a metal grate, as it were, and the worker bees can go up through it. It's just, it's designed so, because the queen has an abdomen that is a lot larger than the normal working bee. Right. So, yeah, so she can't get up through there, but the worker bees go and collect everything and then they will crawl through it. It's like a grate, um, you know, like over a drain, but very you know, about eight millimetres spaces with it and they um, can continue going through there but the queen can't. But we don't operate our hives with them. We don't use them. My last one is what is a chalk brood? Oh, chalk brood is a disease that um, it actually mummifies. It's a brood disease and it mummifies the larvae inside the hive and they actually die in their cell and they reckon it's uh, related to the queen. So if you get chalk brood in a hive, it's very hard to... Um, to get rid of it so a lot of people have different views some people say you need to get some thyme oil uh, from the thyme plant and mm -hmm. you put that into say maybe a sugar syrup and get them to feed that to her and they say that may help um, some people say it's it's nosema causes um the end result being chalk brood i i'm i'm not sure i just it's well i've only ever seen it this season which is really, you know, the season just passed. Um, and it's not something I've had a lot of experience with because it just hasn't been in our area. But yeah, as I said, this season, which has just finished on the 1st of June for us, um, they, the yeah, the chalk brood was present in a couple of hives that failed. Right, so it's um, a, a dysfunction that's happening on a mass scale of the, the new brood that are being born by the queen. There's obviously something that's gone wrong and they're not um, viable. Yeah, exactly. And they won't right. develop. They'll just die in the cell. And the queen, you know, she'll probably keep laying um, and the bees will keep looking after her. But pretty soon what happened in the ones that I saw it, they slowly, the population just doesn't build up. So then they just start to fail. Gotcha. And um, the last thing that I wanted to discuss with you, Margaret, while I've got you, is to get kicked off. I'm sure this is the question you get all the time, but what are the minimum equipment requirements of getting into beekeeping? What, what are the things we actually need to start? Well, it really depends how much you want to protect yourself. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, bees will sting. When you're a learner, you... You want to be confident, so my thoughts are that you'd want to be fully suited, and all suits come with a veil, so therefore your face is protected, and I would recommend gloves. I myself use mesh um, suits, which are three layers of mesh, so it's not a heavy cotton suit, which I think is a sauna suit, basically. Um, <laughs> that's my view. Um, and they're very popular, 
and at least they we call them the kiwi breeze because at least when there's a bit of air you get it around your body rather than just sitting in this very hot cotton suit we do we have got three articles that we wrote about when you start beekeeping so it's about the essential equipment essential pieces of information and essential gear you know that you need as a beekeeper and that kind of thing and just how you want to set it up so it really depends on money some people go for the cheapest options but I don't really think that that's really the key I think it's having a hive tool Um, I would recommend what we call a frame holder I would recommend a bee brush um, a thing called a capping scratcher um and a smoker, you know, and then you have competitions between your friends if they start beekeeping on who can light the smoker and how long they can keep it smoking. And just in terms of outlay, would could you expect to spend, say, less than a grand to get set up with just a small hobbyist um, sort of hive? There's different ways you can actually get bees. So some people buy the gear, new boxes and everything, and then they catch a swarm. How do you do that? You just <laughs> head out with a net or what? Tell you what, man, the the collecting swarms, we did it for a few seasons and it's the most fun, the most exciting. You know, the people who are nearby come and talk to you. They're all frightened and excited <laughs> about this, this swarm and all these bees everywhere and it's actually a really good part of the adventure, but you don't necessarily know the status of those that colony. But it, a lot of people start their beekeeping that way. So th- there is some fun with that, but I personally think that I I sell what I recommend the best, and that's a fully working colony. And that means that it's been running for a while. It's have a new season queen. We split them in spring, which is around September, and they're usually ready around December. And then what happens is that new beginner, because that's I have the I teach them, and then they take on a, a fully working hive, and it's all basically set up for them to go. So. If you're starting that way, I reckon buying the gear and you'll have about $1,200 to $1,500 to really get yourself fully set up to go through and get the bees, you know, started in yourself. You have everything you need, so no panicking, and then, yeah, go from there. That's so awesome. Margaret, thank you so much for chatting with me today and also for all the amazing work that you do to protect these incredibly important workers in our um, whole ecosystem. I was going to say our food chain, but it's so much deeper than that. And they're under threat and we need more people like you and Gary um, educating and spreading the good word about how we can all care for, for bees and let them thrive. So thank you so much. Oh, that's awesome. And if anyone wants to... Um you know, join Kiwi Mana Buzz. We do have a free newsletter. It's at kiwi.bz forward slash sign up, one word. And uh, yeah, we provide a lot of information for people starting out. And I will uh, add to that that Kiwi Mana are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And they've got a fantastic website as well, which has got a ton of information. And you can get Kiwi Mana, one word, um, the podcast in whatever app that you use for your podcasts. Yeah, Kiwi Mana buzz, that's it. 
Thanks again to Margaret from Kiwi Mana Buzz Podcast. You can check out the show notes of this episode for all of the links to their great website and their social media accounts and their super fun and informative podcast series. Now, let's hear from Jessie, who's the other bee expert I caught up with who runs Bees Up Top in Auckland with her partner Luke. So Jessie, thanks very much for talking to me. Oh, no worries, Tim. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing great. That's awesome. You and your partner run a business called Bees Up Top. Can you tell me a bit about what it is and how it started? Yes, so we rescue bees from being exterminated and we rehome them on the rooftops of Auckland City. So we rescue bees during the springtime. We're in touch with a whole lot of exterminators throughout Auckland City who give us a call when they are called out to exterminate a bee swarm. We Bees Up Top rescues bee swarms for free. So if you find a bee swarm in your back garden this spring, give Bees Up Top a call and we will remove it for free. It just breaks our heart to think the bees are getting exterminated. We need the bees so much. So give us a call. We'll be there in a jiffy and you can watch a bee swarm being saved, which is such an adrenaline rush. The way that I got into bees and beekeeping was Luke and I actually moved in with a beekeeper and we just learnt everything that we needed to know from this guy who had been keeping bees for 30 years. Wow. Uh, We had our own beehive in the back garden. We extracted honey. We sold honey. We caught swarms. We read books. Like We just lived and breathed bees. And one day we needed a new queen bee for the hive. And the postman delivered it to my front door. So it was at that point there that I was really hooked on beekeeping. I couldn't believe that a queen bee was able to be delivered in the post. And it had travelled seven hours to get to me. So, yeah, that really got me hooked. That has blown my mind as well, finding out that you can post bees in the mail. Um I'm interested in your business because it seems like, um, and this has been the case with other businesses that I've looked into um, to do with bees, there's a lot of different facets to it. There's kind of an educational arm to it. There's the core business, which is renting out these hives. Um, Is it solely to businesses or do you do it to houses as well? Yeah, we rent beehives to businesses and we also rent beehives to people. So lots of families like to have a beehive in their back garden so that their kids can learn about bees. And the cool thing about Bees Up Top is that we educate the owner of the beehive every single time we come to do an inspection. So the person who has the beehive on their rooftop or in their back garden gets to learn about bees. It's a fun thing for a family to do and it's a really neat thing for a workplace to do together too. And I understand that both the families or the households and the businesses get some of the product of the bees as well? Yes, so at Christmas time I give everybody their honey in personalised honey jars. So your honey is extracted from your hive. It's not heated, it's not treated, it's raw unprocessed honey that goes straight from the hive into a jar and delivered to you in these gorgeous little 
uh, labeled jars that I make up myself. So they make really great Christmas gifts and corporate gifts as well. That's so cool. Do you know, is there much difference between the treated and untreated or the, the non-heated honey? Yeah, so it's really, really important to keep all the goodness inside your honey. And a lot of the goodness comes from the pollen. Uh, it's the pollen that makes honey crystallize. So if pollen is still in a jar, it will crystallize. And a lot of supermarket honeys have had all the pollen strained out of the honey because they want it to have a nice long shelf life and to look pretty on the shelf. But we choose not to heat our honey up. That pasteurizes it. So that gets out any little, any little nasties that might be in the honey. But we choose not to do that and we choose not to take the pollen out either. And do you know how much it affects the shelf life? How, how long can you have raw honey around for? Yeah, so it would take about three months for a jar of honey to crystallize because of, because of the pollen. And it, a lot of people think that their honey has gone off because they open up the lid and there's all these crystals around the outside. But that is the best honey for you because it's full of pollen, and the pollen is where all the goodness is. So if you want your honey to go back to a nice runny state, you just pop it in a warm place for a couple of days, and the honey becomes runny again. We keep our honey on top of the coffee machine, and it just keeps it um, nice and runny all the time. And how long have you been running the business for? I've been running these up top for three years. I used to be a graphic designer, so I left my desk job three years ago and am now a full-time beekeeper, and I just love it. Can you tell me a bit about the beekeeper lifestyle? Because I'm kind of fascinated by it. Yeah, so as a beekeeper, you have busy seasons and you have quiet seasons. And the busy season starts in October and runs through to February. And at this time, bees are swarming because it's springtime in October. And in December, you're removing all the honey. You only remove honey once a year. And then in the, in February, you're starting to close down the hives to get them ready for the cooler months. So then when... Uh, March, April, May, June, July, when those months hit, it's quite quiet. Bits and beekeepers are able to go on a holiday, take a vacation, um, and do all the inside jobs like fixing up hives, rewiring frames, uh, melting down wax, those sorts of uh, in-the-shed jobs. Awesome. And I would love to hear this from you because you've been immersed in this world for a few years now um, and you just know so much about it. Can I know this is a really broad question, but can you just speak a bit about how important bees are for the planet and for people? Yeah, bees are so important for the existence of humans on the planet. Um, one third of the world's food is pollinated by bees. Wow. So, 
Yeah, it's huge. And basically, if you think of this, every fruit and vegetable that has a seed or a pip was pollinated by a bee. So if we didn't have bees, we wouldn't have all those fruits and vegetables that have seeds and pips. That's all the best ones. Those are all my favourites. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. That's like pretty much walking through the supermarket and you take away three quarters of the vegetable aisles. They just wouldn't exist. So the the little sticky up thing on a flower, the stamen, when the bee touches that with a piece of pollen, that then is pollinated. It turns into a fruit. But when you cut that fruit open, so you cut open the apple and you see the seeds inside, those used to be pieces of pollen. And the bee carried the pollen from one flower to the next while it was foraging for honey nectar and um, yeah, turned it into a fruit for us. So in Asia in some some countries they are actually pollinating apricot orchards by hand and these guys go off to the market and they buy heaps of flowers, shake them upside down to get all the pollen off they shake it into a bag and then they use a feather to touch every individual flower to pollinate them. Whoa. And that's why? Yeah, that's, that's because these have been wiped out and they are using humans to do the job of pollination. So that is as a response to this, uh, the bee collapse that we're seeing all across the world for a few interconnected reasons, but it seems like it's mainly the proliferation of synthetic um, fertilizers and all of the pesticides that you've got to use alongside them. They're having to go through manually with a feather and hand pollinate the, the, the plants now. Yes. Oh. Yeah, apricot is already happening around the world. That is terrifying. Yeah, what, yeah it is. What's your perception of where we're at right now in the sort of short-term future? Do, do you, are you optimistic or, or are you pessimistic that the numbers are still going down and we're not doing enough? I'm pretty optimistic about bee numbers around the world. It's really, really important to control a healthy hive, especially here in New Zealand. We have a disease called American fowl brood. And if your hive gets American fowl brood, you have to report it because bees can take American fowl brood from one hive to another when they rob other hives. But I'm seeing a lot of changes around the world where People are steering away from pesticides and they're looking for alternative ways to eradicate pests from their crops. And that's really awesome to see. Totally. Well, what I love so much about your business is that you are connecting people who don't have to have any prior knowledge whatsoever or experience with bees. Just a vague notion that we know we need to step up our protection of them and helping them because we've done so much to decimate them so far. And you're allowing people to just phone you up, easy as, get a hive, it allows their numbers to proliferate and they get to learn about bees and they get some honey at the end of the year as well. And I think that that is the key, is connecting people who don't have to have a a lot of knowledge with being able to solve the problem. So I just think what you and Luke are doing is really fantastic from that respect. Oh, thank you. That's so cool. 
We also run beekeeping classes. We do an online beekeeping course and we have a one day out at Bethel's Beach. And we also run classes for kids in schools, which is so much fun. Fantastic. Well, all of that stuff is available at beesuptop.co.nz. Thank you so much for having a chat to us today, Jess. It's been um, really cool learning about both you and the business and the bees. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Have a great day. And that's our bee episode. Thank you so much for listening and thanks again to both of my guests for this episode. Links to their websites are in the show notes. I'm going to go now and plant a diverse range of heritage flowers in my backyard. So we'll catch you on the next episode of How to Save the World. Bye-bye.